What you're about to hear was aired on Planet Philadelphia, environmental radio show on Germantown Community Radio, 92.9 FM, WGGTLP in Philadelphia, and on gtownradio.com. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Planet Philadelphia. I'm Kay Wood, the host. I'll be talking with a couple of people today, Katrina Gesso and Ellen Bruno. They're from the University of California. And we're going to be talking about water conservation and farming and a particular study they did. Before we get into the study and your findings, could you introduce yourselves? And I guess, Ellen, if you could go first. Sure, happy to. Thanks so much for having us on your show. Um, yeah, my name is Ellen. I'm an assistant professor of cooperative extension at uh, UC Berkeley, and I study uh, largely groundwater use in agriculture and, and policies related to using that resource in the most effective way possible. Katrina? Again, thanks so much for having us. Um, my name is Katrina Gesso. I am an associate professor in agricultural and resource economics at UC Davis, where generally I specialize in environmental and environmental resource economics. And much of my research centers on and focuses on the design and evaluation of pricing and conservation policies in the water sector. A lot of regions in the United States are having problems with groundwater and declining aquifers. And farms are a big user of water. I believe your study studied one area that decided to be very active in getting farmers to conserve water. If you could tell us about that. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we've there are actually a couple of places uh, in in California that there are prices on groundwater. Uh, we have another study in the Coachella Valley. The one I think you're referring to is in the Pajaro Valley, where the local agency uh, instituted a fee and the farmers had to pay a fee on their groundwater extraction. And the local agency then used those revenues to uh, fund a recycled water program. Yeah. So. I, I want to say a few things. Um, maybe kind of the first is I can set the stage a little bit. So when we think about water use, um, often we water we think about water com use coming from either surface water. So we think about this as kind of rivers or streams, um, or kind of precipitation, or from groundwater. And this is water that's uh, stored under the ground. And what you've asked us to talk about is groundwater. One reason that groundwater depletion is occurring is because of how it's traditionally been managed, right? And so in economics, what we say is we say that kind of groundwater typifies what we think about this as this kind of open access resource. And that means that anyone that can kind of drill a well can kind of take as much water as they want. And what kind of the absence of property rights for groundwater has led to is it's led to a whole lot of costs, right? People are extracting more than they otherwise would or more than is what we in economics say is optimal, right? And so this has led to kind of some issues, including kind of declining groundwater tables. And um, this was kind of the motivation for kind of or spearheaded um, 
the tax or the, the groundwater price that um, Elle and I focus on in our work in the Pot Road Valley. And so the idea um, for the groundwater tax in the Pajaro Valley or for the groundwater price in the Pajaro Valley came about because when groundwater extraction was happening, what ended up happening was the water table was declining and the water table declined so much that it fell below the sea level. So kind of seawater was intruding into the groundwater and compromising its quality. And so what they did when they introduced this price was they started to kind of introduce a different way to manage groundwater. Typically, it had been a bit of an, it had been a kind of this open access management regime where you could take as much as you want. And now you could take as much as you want conditional on paying this price. That must have been a bit of a shock for people, this change. Yeah, I think the the sort of, I don't know, politics of of this in the region is a big part of the story, not something we focused on a ton in our in our study where we were really trying to observe what the impacts of the price was on farmer behavior. But I think that it was a big shock to farmers and it took a lot of uh, local organizing in order for this policy to pass in the first place. If you could describe the area where this valley is, it might help people understand the dynamics better. So when we think about water in the Western U.S., right, kind of the, the, the kind of water challenges in the East Coast are, are perhaps or largely different than the water challenges faced in the Western U.S. And so especially in a place like California, um, water resources has always been characterized as these kind of peaks and troughs, right, kind of these wet years and these dry years. And over time, the, the wetness and the dryness of these years is becoming kind of more extreme with climate change. But in the Western US, and in California, I should say, about 80% of consumptive use or withdrawals for water is from agriculture. So agriculture is the dominant user of water in California. In California, farmers rely on a mix of surface water and groundwater to irrigate their crops. Another notable feature I should say of California is that agriculture is irrigated. And so you can imagine in years where there's not enough or as much surface water, the way that farmers have historically mitigated the cost of drought or compensated against the cost of drought is by drawing from those groundwater reserves, right? So you can think about kind of groundwater reserves in a way as like this rainy day fund, right? They're grabbing from it during times when surface water isn't available. And that groundwater provides this really essential buffer during times of drought. I guess one more thing that I would add about California's water landscape is that the surface water is kind of moved around throughout the state through this built infrastructure. Uh, a lot of the water, most of it is comes from the snowpack in the Sierra Nevadas, and we've kind of engineered this system where we can move water around the state. But one thing that's interesting about our study area, which is located on California's central coast, it's this area just east of Monterey Bay. It is disconnected from the surface water grid that feeds uh, the main agricultural areas in the Central Valley of California. And so they have to rely exclusively on groundwater in this region. And I think that dependence on groundwater is part of why they've had seawater intrusion problems. It's led to this overdrafting of the groundwater over time and also led to 
the momentum in the local area to do something about the groundwater because it's their one water source. And if they don't have that, they don't have water there. I think it's time to get into your study. Could you tell us what you were looking for and some of your findings? The main research question we ask in our study is we ask kind of if farmers face a price and we kind of we observe what that price is for groundwater, how would their behavior change? And we think it's really important to think about how behavior would change in response to a groundwater price, both in the short term and in the long term. Because you can imagine that many choices available to farmers in the long run may not be available to them in the short. So what do we mean by that? Kind of think about your own behavior. If gasoline prices go up, in the short run, you may drive less often. In the long run, you may buy a more fuel efficient car. If we kind of take to the, that, that to the water setting or the agricultural water setting, you can think that in the short run, farmers may be able to kind of reduce the amount of water they apply to crops. But in the long run, they may change the mix of crops they grow or the acreage on which crops are planted. And so a lot of levers that are available in the long run may not be available in the short. So we wanted to, what we wanted to think about in this paper is if we introduced a price, how would farmers' water use change one year after the price, but also how would it change five years after the price? And I'll let Ellen talk about the, the policy we study as well as the main findings of that policy. Sure, yeah. So I guess there are a couple of things that are relevant to where like this kind of price responsiveness that Katrina is talking about is something that's really hard to observe and pin down in the real world. One of them is because groundwater use is often not measured in many places and we found a unique place that actually meters the groundwater use. Um, so that alone is rare. And then on top of that, groundwater prices rarely exist. And in this location, they also had a price change. And then on top of that, like even if you could observe the groundwater extraction and the groundwater prices, it would be really hard to pin down how much of these changes in groundwater extraction is actually due to the changing price versus the many other factors that cause farmers to change their behavior. And so one thing that's really cool about this study setting is that for a while, for several years, all the farmers in the area were facing this one price. And then at one point in time, just a subset of those farmers started facing a higher price. So we almost have this kind of treatment and control group and a pre-treatment period and a post-treatment period, which is pretty exciting for economists that work with observational data. It's like, oh, we almost landed on an experiment out in the real world and we can use this to try to see what the price effects are. And so that's what we were able to do here. And looking across all of the years in our data, we start by first estimating this average effect. And it's roughly that a 20% increase in prices led to roughly a 20% decline in groundwater extraction. But we were able to dig a little bit deeper in our understanding of the price effects because the price change it went up for this treatment group that I'm calling, and it stayed that way for several years. And so we could see how the response to that price changed over time. And we found that 
the responsiveness of farmers to the price grew over time and it actually doubled between the first year and the fifth year of the tax after it had been in place. And we think that's largely due to some of the reasons that Katrina alluded to earlier in that farmers have different means with which they can adjust to a price change, like changing what crops they're growing or irrigation technology, um, all the things that I defer to farmers for. I'm an economist. <laughs> I'm not sure what all the many ways are that you might respond to a price increase, but it is very intuitive that not all of them would be available to you in the very beginning. You know, the first year the price comes in, it's not that easy to just switch what crops you're growing. Uh, but maybe with over a couple years, you're planning ahead, you can switch the crops you're growing or invest in new technologies and things like that as time goes on. And understanding those dynamics and how farmers respond to prices are pretty important when you're thinking about optimal policy design. What I wanted to add was, or I actually wanted to add two things. Um, the first was kind of in response to your question, Kay, of were farmers in shock with this price increase, but also kind of in speaking to our results. I think one thing that was really unique about the way this price was introduced in the Pajaro Valley is that you think of a price could do two things. A price can make goods more expensive. So in this case, it makes water more expensive and you use less of it. But what this price also did was it provided a new source of revenues. And what the water agency did that was so creative was they used these revenues to fund the construction of recycled water supplies. And so, yeah, you can view this as a tax, but you can also view it as a new source of revenue that provided water supplies to this water district, right? And I think that's kind of another response to your question. Yeah, there was shock, but it was also really interesting how they used the money collected from these revenues. The second thing I wanted to add in response to your question on the price shock, and I think kind of is a, another kind of result of our study is the Pajaro Valley, as well as a few of these other water districts like the Cajela Valley are unique in that they're directly pricing road. However, in California, we have this rule that was approved in 2014. It's called the Sustainable Groundwater Management. What happened with the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act is that um, groundwater districts in California would have to start to comply and achieve sustainable groundwater levels. And so what our study does is it provides hopefully an on the ground example of one way that all these districts in California or one tool they can use to achieve sustainable groundwater. This is one study in one area, but do you think it has potential for other areas, particularly in the West, who are really suffering with aquifer decline and groundwater problems? Yeah, I think that's a great question. It's fairly well understood that, you know, if the price of something goes up, you'll use less of it, but not well understood to what extent. So the, the effectiveness of this kind of tool for creating conservation will vary based on the location. And we know that price elasticities in general are things that are well studied in economics. But just within our own research, you know, we have kind of gotten at this question from two different study areas. Uh, as Katrina alluded to, we've also looked at this in the Coachella Valley. And 
one of the conclusions looking at both of these research papers together is that the price responsiveness differs across locations. But regardless of this question of, you know, how large of a price would you need to reach a certain conservation target? Another thing that economists are thinking about when considering prices as a tool for manage ground, managing groundwater is what it means for the farmers in, in adapting to the policy. And one thing that economists often like about prices is it allows the farmers who are paying the tax to respond to it however they want to, essentially. Right? It's not saying you can't use more water, it's just getting more expensive. Um, and so it allows more flexibility on behalf of the farmer. Uh, they can choose an, any number of different ways to reduce their water use if they want to or pay the price. Um, and so, yeah, regardless of how sensitive farmers are to prices in different locations, that fundamental part of using prices as a policy instrument holds true across different settings. Well, I really enjoyed talking with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kay. Thank yeah, you, Kay. Thanks for reaching out. If you want to know more about Planet Philadelphia, go to planetphiladelphia.com. You could also find out more about other G-Town Radio programming by going to gtownradio.com. I hope you will consider making a small monthly donation to help Planet Philadelphia continue presenting interviews on important underreported environmental topics and exploring their complexities and intersections. Thank you so much for your support. Mm -hmm.